Hello and welcome to Braincast. Today I'll be speaking to Cornet Cross, a professor of neuroscience here at Sussex. After completing a degree in medicine from the University of Groningen in the Netherlands, Cornet began a PhD at the University of Cambridge, during which he developed pioneering techniques in the field of hearing research. Since then he has led an extensive and prolific career in this area. More specifically, his lab attempts to find ways to protect cells in the inner ear from dying, and in doing so, prevent hearing loss and deafness. Today we discuss this fascinating and important research, but also get some insight in what it's like to be an academic, and hear some advice for those aspiring to do a PhD and begin a career in research. Thanks, thanks very much for coming. Um, it's very kind of you to, to lend us your time. Thanks for the um, invite. We yeah. just wanted to have a bit of a chat about your research and that, that kind of thing. Um, we've only, we've only, we've, you and I haven't actually met in person before. We only met via Zoom. Yes, so we, yes, I suppose, indeed. I suppose yeah. it's how you meet most students for the last few years. Has been quite a lot of Zoom. Indeed, I'm very glad to be moving away from that and yeah. uh, see people in 3D. And, yeah, uh, yes, exactly. After years of lecturing in real life, it must be such a strange adjustment to suddenly everything going online and things. yeah yeah no yeah. it was it took a long took a long time and mm. it takes time to get back to normal as well yeah <laughs> so. yeah i can imagine yeah um so yeah we'll just we'll just start really with at the start of your your sort of your career mm-hmm. um so you started with a degree in physiology from cambridge yeah uh, was that was my phd basically uh, uh-huh. yeah so yeah. you your, your ba and then and then then you went and did medicine is it at, at Groningen? Yes, in the Netherlands? yes, yeah. Um, and then came back to Cambridge for your PhD. So it would seem to me, I might be wrong, but um, neuroscience maybe wasn't initially your first, your first sort of choice. Mm-hmm. Um, so how did it, how did you sort of become interested in, in neuroscience and, and your field of interest specifically? Hearing, uh, yeah, and autotoxicity. So um, neuroscience, um, I actually started, um, I'm, I'm, Dutch and I uh, uh, started my um, academic career studying medicine in the Netherlands, in in Groningen, in the north of the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. Um, I really liked physiology, I realized, and um, so it turned out that um, so my physiology professor was um, um, an Englishman. Mm -hmm. I sort of talked to him, can I do some more, something more about physiology, by physiology, I think. And then mainly neuro neurophysiology, because mm-hmm. um, I I just found the brain amazing. I remember as a medical student uh, buying my atlas of um, medical um, my, the medical at- anatomy atlas, and just after the brain was so much more complicated than any other organ. The, mm-hmm. the, all these weird Greek names like amygdala and hippocampus and stuff that I had no idea what they what they meant, and I just thought uh, yeah, I want to find out about that. That's really interesting. So. So that's, that's that. I started in medicine, then I sorted out to do that I could do a year. I did uh, part two physiology uh, a year in Cambridge to do physiology. And then indeed, I finished off my medical training and then went back to do a physio, uh, went back to Cambridge. Um, hearing, I, I, I love music. Music is, uh, is, is one of my, my, my um, it keeps me, keeps me going really. It's really important for me. And, um, uh, when I was in my teens, I sort of started listening to, to exploring uh, classical music, and I was remember I was listening to um, on headphones because I didn't want want to disturb my brothers and the rest <laughs> of the family with my music days. They were well, they were into Pink Floyd. I was into into classical and stuff. <laughs> so I was listening to the Military Symphony by Haydn, Number Hundred, 
and it's got a triangle in it and I realized when I turn around my headphones the triangle is still on the right side so I uh, thought hmm there's something wrong with my hearing and, and um, I was quite worried about it so I went to an ENT doctor um, who tested, tested my hearing, was whispering behind me and did uh, all the hearing tests and he told me at the end, geen zorgen voor de dag van morgen, so no worries for the day of tomorrow in, in Dutch. Um, and, but clearly, yeah, there was something not quite right about my hearing. So, so I thought, yeah, that, that is kind of interesting, what's, what's happening there, basically. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's the start. The interesting hearing is um, uh, really an interest in music. And... Um, by no means being a good enough musician to <laughs> pursue that mm -hmm. and um, being quite a decent student of, of I think uh, yeah medicine and, and, and other aspects so so I thought that's that's what I go for so um, then in Cambridge um, with the PhD um, basically I chose the supervisor who, who um, really did inspiring research in the area of hearing so, so mm -hmm. yeah Right. Yeah, I think it's. I think neuroscience is one of those things where it really allows you to pursue a passion you have outside of science, because because everything interfaces with the brain really. So something like music, obviously, is is entirely fascinating in in and of itself. But to be able to study how it how we perceive it on a biological level, I can definitely understand why that would be. Yeah, it was, it was really intriguing, and that's, that's, I'm still learning every day, basically. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah of course, yeah. So um, what did you choose to do for your PhD? You said that you picked a supervisor who's inspiring in hearing. Yeah. What kind of, so briefly sort of summarise what you looked at. So very briefly, in my supervisor's lab, um, they were working on hearing in um, turtles because um, they were had a very accessible ear and um, you could take it out and keep it alive uh, outside the body. You could look at the, the ear and also the hair cells. They were very interested in the, in the, in the hair cells that um, just use sound into um, um, electrical signals to the to the brain and when I came to chat with my prospective supervisor um, he basically told me do do whatever you like uh, so so uh, as long as it's within hearing or the vestibular system I remember going to the pub and sort of discussing that mm -hmm. and um, so we arrived at that because I was a medical doctor uh, or was training to, yeah, I was a medical doctor at that time, I went for the PhD and just qualified. Um, it would be fun, really interesting to try and what they were doing on the turtles on, on a mammalian um, system. So that's that's what I did. So I studied hair cells um, in in mammals, in guinea pigs, as it, as it turned out uh, to to be. So, um, and I found, I really did the, the pioneering work on finding out um, aspects of how the inner hair cells encode um, sound. I did the, the first patch clamp experiments on, on the inner hair cells. That was really the, wow. the gist of my PhD. Yeah, so something quite pioneering then, because I know a lot of you know PhDs, theses get get printed and then you know, sort of get shelved and mm -hmm. never, never read again. But you know, I suppose you must be quite proud that you were able to do something with your PhD that was sort of groundbreaking. Yeah, that was great. It's a, we got a paper out towards the end of my PhD um, in the Journal of Physiology, which is still uh, very well quoted. It's got, um, I think, pretty much the only picture in the literature of an isolated inner hair cell. It's a really beautiful picture that uh, I saw it at some point while I was doing the experiment. I thought, that's such a beautiful cell. That's 
much more beautiful than what I normally see. So what shall I do? Shall I try and make another recording, mm. <laughs> or shall I take a picture? And I, I just decided to take uh, take a picture of it. And uh, so, you know, your the typical experiment that you show in the in the paper. A picture is always, of course, this really means the best really yeah. that you've ever seen. So, mm. so oh, yeah. nice, good. Well, that, I mean, that's that's great. But you know, as as I'm sure all PhD students find, it's never it's never easy. Um, so. I, I'm just sort of interested in was there any particular aspect of your PhD that you found particularly difficult you know, as as you were going through it was there anything that stood out as, as more challenging really? yeah it, it was actually I would say the first two years of our PhD quite frankly mm. just because I was really trying to do something pioneering something completely different um, it was actually very difficult to take even to take the cells out um, and keep them healthy, keep them, keep them going well, I had to discover all the tricks, all the ways to, to do that. So the first two years um, were really quite difficult because nothing worked basically. And then suddenly um, it, things started, started working. I remember it was the 17th of August, 1986. <laughs> it's suddenly, suddenly I managed to record from the inner house house and I called my supervisor and his colleague and they, they um, started twiddling knobs and stuff on the patch clamp amplifier. And, um, and my supervisor basically told me, well, you got your PhD, you just have to do this not a hundred times or something <laughs> like that. So, so just uh, waiting for the breakthrough. It's just really hard because mm. you, you just, somehow you, yeah, I kind of lost my confidence in, 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 in many ways. So that, that was that was difficult. Mm, yeah, trying to trying to get just get it going before you can yeah, do much yeah, else. Yeah, it, it, yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm. I suppose that must be especially difficult when you're doing something pioneering. I mean, because you've got you can't really turn to anyone for, for too no, much. No, no, no. That's right. That's right. You can try and draw analogies and uh, and uh, yeah, exactly, indeed. Mm, yeah. But, yeah. Would you, if if you could, in th theoretically give your younger self, your pre-PhD self, a piece of advice, um, or, or in general to any prospective PhD students, what sort of advice would you give, do you think? Yeah, so in retrospect, I actually think I'm really happy that um, I went for a supervisor, met a supervisor who told me, basically do what you like. I think that is something, if you, I know often, depending on the lab setup, it's actually quite difficult because you, you slot into something. I mean, science has changed a bit, it's become a bigger scale in a sense. But try and at least steer things into a direction that you find personally interesting, because that that actually got me through in in the end. Also knowing that yeah, I really care about this, and I really uh, uh, would be very proud if whatever comes comes out of this. The only th the other thing that I sort of discovered halfway through is get yourself something else to do. I, I started playing um, recorder and then later flute while I was doing the PhD. Just to have some completely different focus and keep a sort of balance and, and mental sanity mm -hmm. going. So yeah, I definitely think that's important for kind of you know any kind of study is to have some kind of completely separate thing to, to be getting on with. Yeah, um, and it's 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 interesting that you mentioned the importance of choosing something that interests you because I think a trap that some people fall into is is doing a PhD um, because they want to just continue in academia yeah. and sort of see yeah. it as a job sort of prospect rather than a sort of real dedicated yeah exactly and i think it it, it, it doesn't work very well it, it uh, yeah it, you you really need it it's it is hard it, it's a really probably the hardest time of your scientific career in a sense to do the phd so 
you've got to like it otherwise uh, yeah you you're not going to be very happy i think yeah, and yeah. All, also the people around you probably not <laughs> so yeah yeah this is especially important when science is so collaborative you really don't want to be difficult to get on with no because... in- indeed indeed correct yeah, yeah. 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 so um after your phd um you uh, were at Sussex as a research fellow yeah. for, for a bit and then to Bristol for some years yeah. and then back to Sussex. Um, so when you when you first started out as a postdoc doing postdoctoral research, what was something that kind of you weren't expecting, something that caught you off guard a little bit about what it was like to be a postdoc? Yeah, in, in a sense, um, it wasn't that hard because actually... Having done the PhD, which was, was hard, there were a lot of challenges. I found the, the start, I found the postdoc actually enormous fun because I was um, uh, came to the lab here in Sussex with uh, Ian Russell and Guy Richardson who were, who were there at, uh, at the time. They, they ran a fantastic uh, hearing research operation. And again, they basically told me, do, do what you like. <laughs> so, so I started working on, the, on a new preparation, uh, cochlear cultures that, that Guy Richardson had been uh, developing. And um, there was so much to be discovered. It was just nobody had done electrophysiology on those. So I just needed to work out how to record from them and, and everything. And um, yeah, that actually worked beautifully. Um, I had to learn to um, work with other people because the PhD was very much a solo effort. Mm-hmm. So, but again, yeah, I had a, a colleague, um, Alphonse Rusch uh, from, from Germany, who's um, yeah, long, long died actually of uh, HIV AIDS, but um, he, uh, he was great to work with and, and uh, I, I learned to, to, to work with others and we really sort of spurred each other on to, to do an enormous amount of work. I think I filled a lab book every every three months or something like that. Whereas nowadays, my I think my lab book dates from t- from t- 2012 or something. <laughs> so it's about three quarters full. Yeah. So. A bit less prolific. Writing yes, out. yes, yeah. indeed, exactly, yeah. absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, yes. so, so a postdoc you found to be uh, less perhaps uh, scientifically challenging, yeah. but more focused on collaborating with others collaborating yeah also i found discovering yeah uh, life work life balance you know keep keep your partners in life and things like that happy i was working like crazy all the time and mm-hmm. um, i i sort of had to adjust that also um, mm-hmm. in a sense to, to i think everybody has to decide for themselves what what is a um what's a healthy <laughs> lifestyle in, mm-hmm. in that sense i remember i was working in the in the weekend sort of pretty much all the time because we were trying to follow the development of the hair cells from from day to day as, as they change during 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 development there's lots of changes going on there so mm. so quite you're in there quite a lot making sure stuff was going yeah yeah, yeah exactly exactly yeah. okay well so so that's you know the start of your kind of postdoc career you've obviously been established for a long time now um would you mind giving us a kind of brief overview of some of the most exciting projects that that you're working on at the moment in your lab yeah so currently we are interested in um uh, ototoxicity by um, aminoglycoside antibiotics and um, cisplatin and um, we discovered in the lab um some 15 years ago maybe slightly longer that um 
aminoglycoside antibiotics enter the hair cells through the mechanotransduction channel. So they're the very channels that are in the hair bundles and that open and close in response to sound. So they're like a Trojan horse that go through those channels. They're not meant to go through there, but they, the channels have quite a big a pore, actually, as people have found um, very recently. Uh, they enter the hair cells and they it's a one-way system. They enter, they can't go out again, um, really, because the kinetics and the energetics of going through the channel are very favorable from the outside and not from the, from the inside. Mm -hmm. So we found out how that works. And because we know that they enter through the mechanotransduction channels, um, in collaboration with, with Guy Richardson, we've been working for years on trying to find compounds that also block the mechanotransduction channels and that you could give at the same time as the aminoglycoside antibiotics to block their entry into the hair cells while the antibiotics are needed. And then as the antibiotic treatment is no longer needed, you can hopefully wash it out and, and prevent the, the antitoxicity. So that's the, that's the sort of main thrust of our work um, at the moment. And um, we found actually a compound um, that um, works in the cochlear culture, so in the in vitro preparation, and that also protects um, the hearing of, of mice um, uh, against when you treat them with aminoglycoside. So you put in one ear, you put the protective drug, and um, that's with my uh, post, long-term postdoc in, in the Richardson, and, and my labs, uh, Richardson and Cross Lab, Richard Goodyear, who's uh, been working on that to find that um, that it protects. So, so that's great. So we can, we, we moved the step from um, in vitro to, to real, to a real uh, mammal where you can protect. So that's, that's exciting. Great. And we're continuing to work on different aspects of that. Uh, one thing is that with cisplatin, the evidence is much more uh, murky. It's not very clear. Uh, there may be multiple entrance routes into um, the hair cells. Cisplatin is an anti-cancer drug for people who don't know that. And uh, it's quite successful in many cases, like for example, um, young men with um, testicular cancer, which is a disease of young men. Um, the, the cure rates are very high, over 90%. So they'll have a healthy and happy life in front of them. But quite a few of them will have um, hearing damage due to the cisplatin treatment uh, for, the, for the condition. So we're very interested in, in following that. There's some evidence that it may go through the transduction channel, but there's other evidence that it doesn't. And um, um, yeah, we currently have a grant funded by the RNID, which is a hearing charity, to find out if um, a type of ion channel called the VROC channel, a voltage regulated, uh, a volume regulated anion channel, um, is. Um, uh, perhaps involved in get letting cisplatin into the into the hair cells, so we are we are exploring that, and it might also be involved in um, some kind of repair from the aminoglycosides, some defense against the aminoglycosides. Um, so we are studying that as well. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to check that the audience. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah let's give it a pause. It's, it's turned away from me. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Try not to move too much from where I was. Yeah, so so that that's great. That's really interesting. I think um, it must be quite rewarding to be studying something that has um, such translatable medical, you know, impact. The fact that you could save a lot of people from losing 
partially or totally their hearing it must be quite a rewarding thing to to think in the future you know your work could really go yeah, a long it could, way could be carried forward uh, effectively uh, in, in uh, yeah and hopefully a direction that that helps people i, I think that's I've always been mindful. I kind of started out my research in in um, really quite uh, basic science, really the basic aspects, because nobody knew anything about mammalian hair cells and their physiology, really. So, um, and I've moved more towards um, application. I think, I think, um, yeah, that that it it fits with my background that I I, I manage manage to do that now. The, the, Research climate, of course, has changed in a way as well. That's 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 uh, well funded, really. Mm. So yeah. Well, that's I suppose as well. There's a there's a link to your your medical training as well. Long ago, you know. If yeah. You, when I should say, when you you know originally thinking about medicine, and mm. now you sort of ended up doing something that has quite a lot of clinical application. So yes. it must be quite quite nice that it has that sort of circularity yeah, yeah. I find that yeah exactly that's that's right it's always frustrating because it's uh, research just you you never reach the end goal really <laughs> there's always something the next step that needs to be yeah. <laughs> taken so yeah there's always more to be done I suppose. yeah exactly yeah. exactly yeah. well related to that I mean um, obviously you know your work sounds you know fascinating and you're making a lot of good progress but as with all science there's going to be some element of budgetary constraint applied there indeed <laughs> so yeah. a sort of a fun hypothetical question if you were to say have 10 times the budget that you have right now what sort of things would you like to do with that maybe what would you what would you do differently perhaps or, or mm. what things would you explore basically if i get 100 give me 100 times the budget and then really see through to go from this compound um, that we discovered that works into in the mice onto moving towards clinical trials it's it's a very expensive process it's a very um, involved process it involves lots of uh, quite humdrum testing in a, in a way safety testing um, before you even go on to the, the people quite quite rightly so but um, yeah I would I would try and and do I would try and do that and, and really see that uh, see that through mm. so given that Obviously, clinical trials are, are as expensive as, the, as you say, and, mm. and we, we, you know, aminoglycosides, but especially with cisplatin, which is such a commonly um, prescribed drug to, to cancer patients, mm. um, do you ever get frustrated that there isn't more funding for, for sort of hearing loss research, or you know, or, or perhaps do you ever do you ever wish that there was more kind of awareness of the research that you're doing here? Yeah, it's always it's always an issue, and um, I think the RNID are doing a great job actually to um, to raise awareness and to um, and to get funding from 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 people. But it's usually uh, it's people who um, yeah are, have a personal interest probably because of their personal history or family history around deafness, and uh, yeah, we're extremely grateful for people who uh, who contribute to the research. Um, It'd be always great to have more um, research council funding. Also, uh, that 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 is uh, that is hard to, to come by, of course. And uh, the, the climate isn't easy. The the funding climate uh, mm. generally. So yeah, um, more is always better <laughs> in that respect. Of course, of course. Well, yeah. Interestingly, um, as you'd mentioned before, how um, 
when you originally started your PhD, it was much more of a kind of individual sort of let sort mm. of do what you're interested in. Yeah. Whereas now, you know, sort of big science is a lot more uh, sort of regimented, sort of structured in what mm. people do. I was interested in if you could think of anything that's really fundamentally changed about how you do work science, how how you do your work since you started your career. I mean, obviously, with a, an accomplished career like yours, it's been a long, a long time. So I imagine lots has changed, but is there anything you think that's really fundamentally different? Yeah, I guess I'm, I've kept quite old fashioned in a way. So I, I still like to have a good idea about what's going on in the experiments and have, a, have an interest in, in the, I'm also very interested in the detail of everything right. So I've always run quite a small lab actually um, on purpose, um, colleagues of mine, um, have really are running much much bigger labs which I think can be very good actually because uh, it, it enables you to to answer questions in, in more detail and in, in, in a broader range so so I may not be the best person to ask this but um, I think actually the yeah the expansion into into bigger bigger labs and, and um, the availability to plug into the ability to plug into really a huge range of techniques to to um, answer questions um, I think that's that's more and more the trend in a sense there's a big there's a big change there I try to sort of do that by collaborating with with people worldwide right, who can offer various uh, areas of expertise that I don't have um, myself so so that is a big change um, I think another aspect is really um, that, that is becoming difficult in a sense is um, managing a career at a university where you you do teaching as well as research and, and balancing that and, and balancing the time and at, at some point uh, that that actually becomes very difficult and that has become more difficult since um, very much more difficult since I started I, I had a lot more time to um, well for years I, I was doing experiments um, every day myself and uh, Nowadays, I'm more a problem solver. So if there's a there's a problem in the lab, I I find it really interesting and to to try and solve it basically. But um, yeah, I just don't have the, um, the the continuous time to to um, to be engaged at, at that level at which I, I started off uh, really. So. so you'd say maybe that the sort of the level of kind of admin load. And, and teaching demands hmm. is definitely more than when you started do you think it is more than yes it is definitely yes it is more than, than when I started and uh, I think it's something um, yeah that needs to be kept under very close review really um, just as as a as an enterprise and as the way universities work it's it's uh, it's, a, it's a difficult it's a difficult one mm -hmm. do you think part of the solution to that would be uh, more lecturers that focus only on teaching to allow researchers to to have more time for their research or do you think there's there's other solutions i think it helps in it probably helps in a way uh, yeah but um i've always found as a consumer as a student myself i managed to be a student until i was 31 because medical training is quite long than a year in cambridge than the phd um teaching is exciting where you feel it's informed by people's experience. I got taught by um, um, Alan Hodgkin who uh, was the 
one of the Nobel Prize winners in physiology for uh, working out the um, action potential uh, conductances in the squid giant axon. And um, he was working on photoreceptors and vision at the time. And it was exciting, it was absolutely exciting. You could go to him and ask questions. <laughs> and, uh, that, was, uh, that was amazing. So, and that may not be the case if you, you get somebody who's uh, really totally focused on, on teaching only. Um, maybe a bit of, um, yeah, I'd, ideally you'd, uh, I would say maybe um, change expectations a bit of, of how much we put into teaching and how much uh, admin we, we put into there effectively. Try and think what, what students really find interesting, what they what they appreciate in, 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 in teaching and, mm. and um, maybe trim down trim down workloads a bit for, for people in that way to make it make it all manageable, make use of the um, the technology that is available. So now I mean from the whole COVID episode with, with the, the Zoom and, and, and things, we, we have learned things and we have learned to do things um, perhaps more efficiently than, than we used to do before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's really interesting because now like you say we have the facility where lots of lectures are recorded mm. um you know you could in theory record you know with some lectures where things aren't going to change massively from year to year yeah you could just have a recorded kind of bank of those and then leave time for researchers like yourself to have more kind of engaged discussion sort yeah of something ex exactly just just try and be creative in in yeah finding out what is what is really into what, what, what students really want <laughs> and, uh, exactly yeah. yeah well relatedly as well um, I was I was going to ask next what what is it that you enjoy the most about teaching and and what is it that you find the most difficult okay yeah what I enjoy is um, I, I love um, interacting with students I when I give a lecture or whatever I I like to ask questions and I, I welcome questions from the from the students uh, what I've really enjoyed the most, um, looking back, is uh, is projects, the year three projects, um, and basically I have a broad area. I have the area of, of hearing. Um, I do something in my specialist area, but in my project I also try and work a bit on more on my music interest and uh, my interest in deafness. So I always have projects around cochlear implants and music perception, for example. It's quite difficult. They're very good for speech, but not very good for for music. And um, I always tell students, if you have an idea for yourself in this area, do it. And you know, I've had a student this year who came up with comparing um, a musia where people can't hold the tune, but they otherwise their hearing is perfectly fine. Uh, with co hearing and cochlear implants, and I thought that was a fascinating idea. I wouldn't have thought of that student came up with that. There was another student some time ago who um, decided to study tinnitus in, in zebrafish and to find a way to, to, to find out about that. And she subsequently did a PhD with me on, on aminoglycoside antibiotics. But I had another student who interviewed doctors in Tanzania about aminoglycoside use. And so just to see these people taking initiatives and enabling that, uh, that that's been fantastic to, to support them in, uh, in that. So I really like that. What I don't like so much as a kind of contrast by that is having to mark people's work. Um, I kind of understand why it's necessary, but um, 
I think the real essence of, of doing academic, going through an academic study is to to find something, to find some sort of purpose in, in your life, something that really fascinates you. And um, I think having to, to, you know, when I'm marking people, I may, I may be marking them on stuff that are actually not really they're, they're that interesting and they, they're great at, at other stuff. And I, I have to be quite tough really because it doesn't fit with my my criteria. So, so yeah, that, that's, that's, uh, that's something that I'm not so happy with, effectively. Mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think that's that's a nice it's nice that you get to see with projects um you get to see the, the real start of people's academic career i yeah. think because up until that point you don't have even you know you might do laboratory kind of experiments in your time at university mm -hmm. but usually when you get to your project is when you first have that kind of ability to pursue things that interest you yeah yeah Exactly, and um, yeah, I always try to encourage people to to really try and think for themselves what interests you and how you, how you're going to go about it. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm often amazed and, and really impressed what what people can do. Yeah, yeah, nice. So uh, as a kind of final uh, sort of the, the the one of the fun questions we have to ask everyone <laughs> in neuroscience: Do you have a, a favourite brain area, and if so, what is it, and and why? Right. Well, you may you may not be surprised, perhaps. It's the bit between the ears. <laughs> so, <laughs> so how exactly how how the brain processes not not just music but um, sound and different and and speech and and um, it, I, it doesn't cease to amaze me. I remember um, I actually found that at the beginning I, I kind of one of the reasons I went for the ears that I often say. I found the brain a bit too complicated to, <laughs> to study physiologically. The ears you can you can access; it's all beautifully laid out. But um, for example, you know, in the auditory brainstem, there's all these nuclei, and um, they process all different aspects of sound. And um, my PhD supervisor used to say, it's, it's, "Think of it as a sack full of a sack of stones, and it's sort of." You can rattle them about they probably still be stones but they're, they're all doing different things and it's, it's difficult to work out what which one is doing what it, it's it's more tricky than the visual system that the steps are are clearer so to, to try and find out and follow the sort of research of how how sound is, is processed in its details how you extract information um auditory illusions things that show that um, um other things going on than than just what what gets in through your ears that 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 does that does fascinate me. So I've been uh, actually diagnosed now with that one ear that in the beginning that when I was in my teens found out that um, I couldn't hear the triangle in. I, if I test that ear, it's it's I've got hearing loss in that ear, and the other ear is fine still. So in principle, I have a fascinating experiment going on all the time <laughs> comparing a good ear with a hearing loss ear so so um, yeah and and it also makes you think that uh, functionally I have, have absolutely no problem so the brain must be able to do a lot of making up for uh, input that is not particularly uh, wonderful yeah it's it's impressive that the amount of um sort of compensating the brain can do for damage to the organ itself yeah. it shows how much the brain is responsible for that information beyond just what comes in you know it, so much processing exactly i think stuff. the brains are just it almost doesn't matter what um it, 
what you put in it's it's geared to towards making sense of whatever input you you put into it effectively mm. yes do you think there's do you ever sort of find it a cosmic irony or something quite quite humorous that someone that's dedicated their career to studying hearing and and hearing loss it has some element of that or is that is that just interesting i i kind of it's it in some ways it started my interest because because i, I was worried about it and although the ent surgeon said don't worry about the day of tomorrow i always kept thinking that's just maybe you're not quite right you're just you're just trying to make me feel good about this basically so as a doctor should do sometimes perhaps but uh, yes it's yeah. fun, fun that it's come it's the thing that you know sort of started off your interest and sort of kept going and kept you kept yeah. you going with it i'm actually thinking i should i should go and have it and try a hearing aid or something like that and see what it does really and, and uh, yeah it'd be interesting it'd be interesting to to, to have that sort of knowing so much about the science going on underneath it must be interesting to to be able to sort of put it to use kind of or yeah. sort of every day you know? yeah exactly and hopefully uh, maybe because of my my interest in the knowledge that i've developed uh, i might able to be able hopefully to contribute something to the science of improving those uh, uh, hearing aids it, uh, they're, they're quite tricky in a sense because they um, yeah, they are working with an input system that is not working that well and um, there's various strategies that, that companies are trying to, to improve the, the processing and again it probably needs to be different for speech and for, for music for example so um, yeah I'd be very curious to, uh, to see if for example also music processing and, and enjoyment and appreciation um, can be improved in, in hearing aid uh, users. Great. Well, great. Well, thank you very much for your time. It's been really interesting to, to have a chat about all these things. So, yeah, just thanks very much. My pleasure. And thank you for the great questions. And, uh, it was, uh, was fun. Thank you.